So we're continuing our series in the beginning chapters of Genesis this week after a, a short break last week when we had uh, my friend Ben Castaneda came and preached an awesome sermon to us from Mark 5. Uh, but now we're back into our series on the beginning chapters of Genesis. Why? Because, uh, again, I've been saying this every week, but there's, a, there's kind of an idea in the church that Genesis might be um, interesting history, but it doesn't really have anything to do with us. We're a New Testament church, and the New Testament is for us. The Old Testament, we don't, a lot of times, don't even really know what to do with it. But the reality is, as we've been pulling out that, of the text, that all of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith are present in these first nine chapters of Genesis. And nowhere is that more true than today. Uh, you may be looking at uh, the, the text passage, Genesis chapter 5, and maybe saying to yourself, uh-oh, you know, another one of those, here's one of those long, boring genealogies. Uh, and, I, and I feel you on that. Whenever I come to the genealogies in the Bible, my mind just goes on auto speed read. Uh, especially, you know, especially in the big lists and numbers or wherever, I'm just going to fly through it. Uh, and we're tempted to skip over these things, but sometimes buried in these uh, uh, seemingly obscure parts uh, or seemingly ro- uh, uh, ordinary parts of the Bible, uh, you see the most amazing things when you take a closer look. And so that's what we're going to do today. Can I ask you to please stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word, uh, out of respect for the speaker who is God speaking to us through His Word. I am only the reader. And uh, this is God's inerrant Word from Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. 
Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall give us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. Lord, we thank you for the history that you give us in it. We thank you uh, for teaching us this stream of families, the promise that you made to Adam and Eve that one day one of their seed, one of their offspring would come. Uh, And we see carefully the tracing of the family lines where this seed would come through. All of these patriarchs listed here to Abraham, through the sons of Israel, to David, and ultimately to Jesus, Lord, so that we can see that one coherent narrative, that one coherent story of how you bring salvation to your people, and we can trace it through the entire Old Testament, Lord. Uh, But we also thank you for the prophecy that you give us, Lord, the prophetic record that shows that you, as God, are able to teach things before they happen. You are able to tell the end from the beginning in detail in ways that prove that you are a supernatural intelligence outside of our space and time. And therefore, what the Bible has revealed to us is more trustworthy uh, than the most brilliant speculations of men. And we can trust in that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust as we see prophetic record unfold before our eyes today, the beauty of Jesus, the surety of Christ and his salvation so that we can live and be courageous in the world. And we pray this. In Jesus' name, Lord, give us our minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. Amen. Please be seated. This is one of my, uh, you might be wondering why we have a picture of, of Daniel in the lion's den for a sermon on Genesis 5. I have a couple of motivational pictures that I keep handy Uh, One of them is a picture of John Christossom preaching to the Roman empress who is in complete, like, disdain from his preaching to remind me, you know, what what I'm called to do, preaching to the world and preaching to the church. And this is another one that I keep on hand. Uh, Daniel, if you remember the story, if you know the story, Daniel was born uh, as into royalty in Israel. He was one of the high-born young men of Israel at the time Uh, that Babylon, the nation of Babylon came and destroyed Israel and took everyone captive and into exile. Uh, And so Daniel, why I like this picture is because Daniel here, Daniel's an old man. He's lived through the whole bloody cycle of Israel's long defeat. I mean, he's seen it all. He's seen nationwide persecution and downfall. He has seen and watched his entire culture and everything he cherished and believed in absolutely destroyed, ransacked and discarded. He watched his temple 
the place of worship and his religion destroyed off the face of the earth. Uh, he watched his people destroyed. And he's been in exile as essentially a political slave his entire life, serving a wicked king in a blasphemous nation who served gods who are no gods at all. Uh, and if anyone, anyone had a right, or anyone had cause to lose faith in God, if anyone had a right to say, man, maybe after all those things, maybe that's proof, maybe that's prima facie evidence that God doesn't really even exist. If anybody had a right to lose his faith, if anyone had a right to blame God or be mad at God, it was Daniel. And you know what's great about this painting? We're not done yet, Jason, sorry. <laughs> you know what's great about this painting? Look at him. Daniel is not looking to see what the lions will do. He's looking to see what God will do. Why is that? How is that? How is that even possible? Daniel's, you know, like I just said, Daniel's an old man. He'd been through it all. He'd seen God preserve him. He'd seen God rise up. He'd seen God bring low. He'd been through the whole cycle, and Daniel knew, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that those lions, the evil men who betrayed him, the political system that landed him in that jail cell with lions, had no more power over him than God allowed. And so Daniel knew a real simple and important truth, and that is that God's going to do what God's going to do. Amen? If God wanted to display his power to that pagan culture by preserving Daniel and saving him, then praise his holy name. If God wanted to end Daniel's exile and bring him into glory, praise his holy name. He's not looking at the lions. He's looking at God. Because he knows, uh, he knows that things are real simple. For Daniel, things are real simple. All he had to do was worship God, remain faithful to God, and love and serve the people that God had put in front of him, even people that hated him in his entire existence, and trust that God would do the rest. That's why I love this picture. I want to have, I want to have faith like that. How would you like to have faith like that? I mean, <laughs> sitting in a lion's den, not tripping. If you could do that, you could probably sit in your living room when the bills come in and not trip. You could probably sit in your living room in the middle of a big fight with your spouse and not trip. Uh, you could probably sit in your living room or in the principal's office with your children and not trip. There's really nothing that could come about, nothing that could happen to us in this life uh, that's worse than that, right? And so I want to have faith like that. How was it that Daniel had that kind of faith? Well, what Daniel lived through, that long defeat of Israel, it wasn't the first long defeat of God's people. It was one of many, uh, and it wasn't the last. The first long defeat of God's people happens right here in Genesis chapter 5, the chapter that we just read. 
and hidden in plain sight within this seemingly dry list of old names, there's a story in it that tells us that as we fight our own long defeat in the world, we can know that God's promises are true and we can take courage that Jesus has won victory over the world. And that's the big idea. That's what we're going to look at. That as we fight our own long defeat in the world, we can know that God's promises are true. And we can take courage that Jesus has won the victory over the world. So let's look at the first part. As we fight the long defeat. I'm taking, I'm stealing that term from Tolkien, from the Lord of the Rings series. There's a, there's a, a part, there's a, the elven queen Galadriel says at one point that together throughout the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. She's expressing the fact that she knows all of her elven brothers and sisters have stayed and remained behind in Middle Earth as it sinks and slides into the shadow, continuing to do righteousness and goodness and truth, continuing to uphold the good and true and the beautiful, continuing to love and to serve people, even when they know it means their earthly demise, even though it means they will have to go on. Uh, one commentator on, on the Lord of the Ring books in this particular part says that they continued to practice a love unrestrained by worldly success or ambition even though they knew it meant earthly disaster because they knew that refusing to submit to the darkness was their ultimate victory. Uh, and this genealogy right here contains the story of the long defeat of God's people in the very beginning of the world. Uh, look at last week, uh, <clears throat> Charlie, or two weeks ago, Charlie taught Genesis chapter 4, which taught us two, two things, or one big truth, that the descendants of Cain were growing and spreading upon the earth, culminating in Lamech, who was a, portrayed as an evil king, a tyrannical king, who had twisted and, and, and abandoned all of God's wisdom and all of God's law uh, in order to live according to how they wanted, tyrannical, proud, anti-God. Uh, there was a group, a family of these people spreading out across the earth. And at the same time, we saw that Eve gave birth to a third son, the son Seth, replacing her son Abel, which gave hope to the promise that God made to Adam and Eve at the time of the curse, that one of their children would come, one of their descendants would come and undo and crush the head of the serpent and bring deliverance and salvation from the trouble and the turmoil that they had found themselves in, from the curse upon the earth. And this birth of Seth was a renewed hope that God was going to come through with his promise. And the chapter 4 closes by saying the people of Seth began to call upon the name of the Lord. They were worshiping God, a whole nother people group, faithful to God, worshiping God, calling upon his name. Two people, the descendants of Cain, the descendants of Seth, spreading out over the same earth. Question, how do you think those two people groups got along? You think they coexisted? 
I'll tell you how they got along. We know how they got along from Genesis 6, right before the flood. The Bible says this about Noah. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth. This this genealogy ends with Noah. And by the time it gets to Noah, after Noah's father dies, Noah's grandfather dies, he is the last, he and his family are the last people on earth who still worship the Lord. How did that happen? What happened to everybody else? Systematic persecution and genocide of God's people by the descendants of Cain until they whittled everybody down under intense pressure, under intense persecution. Everybody either quit or were killed until it got to the end of the line and only Noah and his family were left. Everybody else either abandoned God or had quit or had been killed. The last people on earth. And that, that kind of rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? I mean, the question is, why would God allow that to happen? Why would God allow it to get so bad? Why would God... You can imagine how much anxiety and fear and hardship and suffering and turmoil God's pe- people went through as they were funneled down into that last family. How much anxiety and doubt must have been in their minds. If God is allowing this to happen to us, maybe he's not even there. Maybe we're totally, maybe we're just foolish. Maybe we're idiots to believe this stuff. And we read the story and say the same thing. Why would God let that happen to them? You know, maybe we look at our own lives and see how the church is declining and losing power in the West. We're at the very beginning of that process, and maybe we say to ourselves, why would God allow this to happen? Doesn't God care about righteousness? Doesn't God care about truth and justice in the world? Isn't God obligated to preserve his people? And that betrays our underlying belief that the church is supposed to have victory in the world. I remember studying church history and walking up to one of my church history professors after, after like studying the Reformation and how like the gospel had been rediscovered uh, and, and, and the truth of the gospel and the true church was just blossoming throughout uh, throughout Europe, and within a hundred years or two hundred years, it started to just get shut down. So that by 1700, people were completely turning from the faith again. And I was like, how, how, why? I was like, what? If, this, if what we believe about the gospel is true, why is it such a small thing? <laughs> and he said, because, because you believe the church is supposed to have glory in the world. But that's not true. There's nowhere, nowhere does God promise that the church will have glory or power or social status or privilege in the world. 
Whenever it happens, it's an aberration. The promise, what most of God's people have experienced throughout the world, the promise of the Bible is that suffering and living through the long defeat is the norm. It's normal. We see it here, Genesis chapter 5. After the flood, we see it happening again with the Tower of Babel descending to where Abraham and his family have no idea who God is. They're moon-worshiping pagan Gentiles in the city of Ur when God calls them out. God brings Abraham into the promised land, builds up Israel only for Israel to apostatize from within until Elijah the prophet can say, I alone am left, Lord. And then we see Israel destroyed by, by, by the Assyrians. We see Judah destroyed by the Babylonians. We see the main theme in the book of Revelation is that through the entire ages, all the ages of the earth, including this one, the norm, the expectation is that the world will exert enormous pressure upon us to quit and, and offer up counterfeit versions of Christianity that allow us to participate and, and be thought of well and have social status in the world. All in an effort to obliterate God's church and God's people in the world. Even Jesus says a couple of super scary things in the Gospels concerning when he returns. He says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. What was it like in the days of Noah? One guy left. He says elsewhere, asking a rhetorical question to the apostles, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so maybe that means that we are living our own long defeat right now. Maybe we're at the beginning. Maybe not, but maybe we are. And if we are, what do we hold on to? What is it that we hold on to that gives us the strength to continue to fight the long defeat, even when it looks like holding on to truth will cause us earthly disaster? And the answer to that is we hold on to God's word. The second part is that we can know that God's promises are true. We can believe, not just believe that God's promises are true, we can know that God's promises are true through the word. Much of the attack on Christianity over the past 100 years, 200, 300 years has come on attacking uh, the reliability of God's word. They, uh, if you go to any bay, any uh, Secular university, and you take a class on the Bible, or the Bible is literature, or the Bible, uh, a class on the Bible, what you'll get is the idea that the Old Testament is essentially uh, a kind of a rough cut and paste job of four or five primary sources uh, that different religious philosophers had uh, re-edited and re-put together and reinterpreted several times 
over the course of time until it finally reached its final form a couple of hundred years before Jesus. Uh, and the final edit was religious philosophers of Israel trying to make sense of why it was that God had allowed his people to go into exile. And so they took all the old sources, all the old writings, and they put them together into a coherent apologetic as to how it was that God's people, the Israelites, could still really be God's people and yet be in utter uh, ruin in exile. Uh, some of that scholarship has been helpful to us over the course of centuries. There are, we can note, we can realize there are, there were older materials that the patriarchs drew on in creating the Old Testament. That's very helpful. However, the idea that it's a rough cut and paste job, it falls apart when you look at two things. First, when you look at the organic progression of the revelation of, of, of the Bible, meaning that each part builds upon the next, or uh, that there's one main narrative of God bringing his Messiah, just as he promised in Genesis 3, through these family lines to eventually coming to Jesus. You can trace that narrative, that line of God bringing that one culminating Messiah to the earth throughout the whole Old Testament. Uh, so even if it was a cut and paste job, God miraculously used that cut and paste job to tell a coherent single narrative through the text. Even more important than that, though, is the prophetic record, that God presents things in the Old Testament presents promises about who Jesus would be in such stark detail that it proves that whoever, whatever the intelligence was, whatever the source was behind the Bible, ultimately, it was from beyond time and space and therefore necessarily supernatural. And we can trust in that. Now, prophecy is in different forms. Sometimes it's overt. Thus says the Lord. Boom. Sometimes it's, uh, in, it's, it, sometimes it's God manipulating the events of history in such a way that it presents uh, like a picture or a, fore, a foreshadow of what, who Jesus would be and what, uh, what he would do. And sometimes it's even more subtle than that. Sometimes God weaves that prophecy into the very fabric of the Bible itself uh, in such a way to give it strength. And by fabric, you know, we could look at it, maybe we could look at it as the picture of a tapestry, a beautiful, uh, in a beautiful ancient tapestry with gold threading through it that gives it beauty and value. But we could also look at it uh, in sense of, 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 of concrete and rebar. <laughs> inside of concrete walls, the rock of that concrete, inside is, is an interlaced iron bars called rebar. That's the fabric that holds that wall together. And sometimes God's word is like that. It's the fabric within the rock of his word that holds it all together and shows beyond the shadow of a doubt that, that we can know that God's promises are true. Uh, and ultimately, that's what this list of names is. Now, in English, in English, uh, in our culture, names don't really mean anything to us. Um, sometimes you may name a child after, you know, a name because, uh, because you love the meaning of the name, but oftentimes in our daily interactions, we don't, you know, we don't really know or, act, or we don't really take into account what our names mean, right? My name is Robert, which uh, means 
bright shining fame. <laughs> yeah, God's, God's sense of humor on that one, huh? Uh, and my last name, Novak, was a Polish name when you, they gave to new converts. It meant new man. When you became a con- converted to uh, Christianity, they changed your name to Novak. So Novak's like the smith of, of, of Poland uh, and Ukraine and Czechoslovakia. Uh, but I don't go around thinking, you know, about my name or what it means. Uh, but in ancient Israel, names were very important. Names had meaning. Everyone knew what the meaning was. And the meaning of these names tells us a story. It tells us the story of these people fighting the long defeat throughout the ages. Uh, and it tells us even more than that. Listen, I'm going to go real quickly through the names here. But Adam means man or mankind. Uh, Seth, as we learned a couple weeks ago, name means, it comes from the Hebrew word that means appointed. In Genesis 4, uh, Eve says, you know, named her, her son Seth because God has appointed. Enosh, the next patriarch in line, his name means mortal, frail, miserable, mortal. Kenan comes from a verb that means sorrow. Mahalalel is a compounded word, mahal, mahal, it means uh, blessing, and El is the name of God, so it really means the blessed God. And Yarad is a, comes from the Hebrew verb, shall come down, it means he shall come down. Uh, and uh, Enoch, here's where it gets interesting, Enoch uh, comes from a Hebrew word that means teaching, and it gets interesting because we can ask ourselves, teaching what? And the answer is in, in, the book, in Jude, in the New Testament. Jude tells us that Enoch was a prophet of righteousness. Um, and what that tells us is that from Enoch on, at least four generations of this, of genealogy, were preaching to the culture around them, preaching about the coming disaster of the flood, preaching about the necessity of trusting in God and abandoning uh, the false religion of, of the Canaanites. And how do we know that? Because Enoch named his son Methuselah, which is two words, muth, which means death, or, or sorry, muth, which means uh, death, and shalach, which means shall bring. And so Methuselah really means his death shall bring. Now, when you do the math, you find out that the very year that Methuselah died, the flood came. What does that mean? It means that Enoch received a prophecy from God of the flood, named his son in accordance with that as a constant prophetic witness to the culture that the flood was coming, and when this man died, it would come. Uh, Methuselah is also the longest life recorded in the Bible, testifying to God's forbearance and patience. And Lamech uh, comes from a Hebrew verb that means to be brought low. It really means to be brought low by sin. And uh, finally, Noah comes from a, a Hebrew word, Noah, which means to bring It means rest or comfort. And you see that Lamech actually prays over his son, Noah, prays that through this child, God would bring rest, God would bring uh, release and comfort to them in their their suffering, right? You can imagine by the time Lamech was 
was born, things were probably pretty bad on the persecution scale. It had gone way beyond America, way beyond China, probably way beyond North Korea, probably Somali levels, where they found out as soon as they got a sniff that you might be Christian, you were executed. Uh, and so we see, we see in that record, right, the most first important thing is we see in that record of name, we see the history of what's happening and the, prof- and, the, and the fact that God is with his people, bringing prophecy, bringing revelation, telling them uh, that he is the true God and giving them strength to endure and to not give up and to not quit. But even more remarkable than those names individually is what happens when you put those names together. Uh, we as Americans, right, we read the Hebrew names, they don't mean anything to us if you put them together. It means nothing. You could like read through it and say, Adam Sheth Anashkina Mahalel Yarad Shanak Muthshalak Lamaknacham, which means absolutely nothing because you don't speak Hebrew. But if I translate it into English, it says this Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God, he shall come down teaching that his death shall bring those who have been brought low by sin comfort and rest. Let's just think about that for a minute. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God, he shall come down teaching. His death shall bring those who have been brought low by sin comfort and rest. What an amazing coincidence. I mean, what are the odds? that those guys could randomly pick names that spell out the Christian gospel tens of thousands of years ago, you know? What a crazy coincidence that must be. Maybe it's, maybe it's a conspiracy. Maybe the rabbis got together. Maybe the ancient rabbis got together and said, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to edit this and stuff in the Christian gospel because we're rabbis. That probably doesn't work either. Maybe it was those pesky Christians. Maybe the Christians got a hold of this text and they redacted it. They edited it to put these names in to say their Christian gospel, except we have a hard copy of it from 250 years before Jesus was born. So that can't be it. See, whenever we... Why does, the, why does the world attack the Bible? Why does the world attack God's word, revelation to us? Because if, we, if it casts doubt on revelation, if we can say, I'm not sure, then we get afraid. We become fearful. We become disoriented. I'm no longer sure I'm doing the right thing. I'm no longer sure this is worth dying for. I'm no longer sure this is worth losing my career over. I'm no longer totally sure that this is worth being kicked out of a country club, losing my friends, being ridiculed. So why would, I lose, why would I lose all those things when I'm not sure? Maybe there's another way I can express my faith that doesn't cost me so much. But what's important about this is that I'll give you 
and I say this to people that I'm talking about, I'll give you any crazy, hypercritical idea of how the Old Testament was put together. I don't really care. You want to say that it was redacted and re-edited and then slapped together and cut and pasted by, you know, Hebrew uh, religious philosophers during the reign of, you know, uh, Xerxes? Okay. You want to say that it's, uh, you know, the Essenes, like, slapped it together from their apocryphal texts? Okay. You want to say that a bunch of Jews got together and, like, wrote it on napkins in the bathroom and slapped it together in a book? 250 BC, okay. I'll give you any old crazy idea, any old crazy hypercritical idea of how the Bible was put together, and it doesn't discount or doesn't diminish whatsoever the prophecy that is inherent in the Bible. The prophecy about the Messiah, who he would be, where he would be born, what he would do, how he would die, what family he would come from, what town he would be born in, uh, and that's just the overt stuff. It doesn't diminish the picturesque, how God manipulated history to be a panorama of his history of salvation across the whole landscape of the Old Testament. And it doesn't diminish at all the fabric, the things like this that God puts in as another layer of surety for us to let us know that his promises are true to let us know that his word is true. Because like it or not, the Christian gospel, the story of incarnating and dying to save sinners is embedded in the very first narrative block of the Bible. Uh, and the prophetic record telling the end from the beginning uh, in critic-proof layers proves that God's word and therefore his promises are, in fact, true. You can, they're so true and so certain, you can bet your life on it. In fact, you would be foolish to not bet your life on it. Why? Because it means, last point, number three, because it means that we can take courage that Jesus has won the victory over the world. Jesus has won the victory over the world. So what's the big takeaway from this? How does this affect us in everyday life, right? We're not just talking about abstract theology. How does this affect us tomorrow morning <laughs> when your brain wakes you up? Hey, Rob, are you awake yet? Okay, good, because I got some stuff I want to talk to you about. You know that person shouldn't treat you that way and you, uh, you need to do something about it and you're never going to be able to accomplish this goal. <laughs> you should just forget it. Uh, no one really likes you and uh, <laughs> whatever. And then you wake up and, and the hardship of life is waiting for us. The hardship of life is waiting for us on the doorstep. How does this help us? How does this help us to be like Daniel and fight the long defeat and to love and serve a world that grows increasingly hostile to us, where it becomes less and less profitable and more and more costly to hold on to what is truly good and true and beautiful? 
there's a, this story I read a while, uh, a while ago uh, in, from the uh, global war on terror. There's a U.S. soldier who was stationed in Iraq who converted to Islam. And the reason he converted to Islam was because he was on guard duty one day uh, and they were, you know, they, they were given orders to, there were suicide bombers, men, women uh, would put explosive vests underneath their clothing and walk up to guard towers of you know, U.S. military and, and blow themselves up. Or they would drive cars up with car bombs and blow up the car. Thus, that was one of the main weapons in, in the war on terror against us. And the soldier was, tells the story about how he's on guard duty one day, car rolls up, uh, local man gets out of the car, starts walking towards him with a big old smile on his face, and the guard pulls his rifle up and says, stop, stop or I'll shoot. And the guy didn't move, didn't stop, just kept coming. For whatever reason, he decided not to shoot, even though he per per was perfectly able to do so. And the guy came up to the front with his paperwork, and he said, why? Why didn't you stop? Don't you know I could have killed you? And the man looks at him, a big smile on his face, and he goes, I only fear Allah. And he was so impressed with that man's faith, in contrast to the faith of his American Christian friends that he saw, he converted to Islam. Because he thought, man, that guy... Uh, he believes, he really believes, he really believes what he, uh, uh, in Allah. And we can learn a lot from that man too. Uh, Islam has a better sense of the unstoppable power and majesty of God than we do on a daily basis. Uh, Islam doesn't have the Lord's Prayer. Islam doesn't have our Father who art in heaven. It just has Allah, who is all-powerful and is in heaven. It's not tempered with that idea that we are also allowed to approach that God as if he were our father, the relational, the love component. Uh, but they have a very good grasp on the power of Allah. And he was so convinced, that man was so utterly convinced of Allah's power over all things, he literally bet his life on it and acted accordingly. And man, could we learn from that. Man, we could learn from that. I think uh, the American church, we have a lot of fear. We spend a lot of time looking at the lions and not looking at God. We're very afraid of what the future might bring. We're very afraid of how uh, political processes, what that might do to us, as, as, uh, to the church, to us as Christians, uh, as the culture becomes more and more hostile. We become very afraid and that fear, as it always does, ends up turning to anger and that anger ends up turning to attack and we attack the very people that God has called us to be a witness of love and service to, uh, and it, it wrecks us. But listen, there's nothing, nothing, nothing in the Quran even close to that prophetic record that I just read to you. In fact, there's really no prophecy in the Quran whatsoever. God has gone out of his way in multiple levels to assure us 
So we can know that his promises are true. We can know that he is God in heaven. We can know that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We can know that by simple faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We're given the righteousness of Jesus, and we are already saved. We are able to stand in the presence of God in love as beloved children because God sees us through that lens. And if that's true and our inheritance is utterly sure, there's, there's nothing that we should be afraid of. We of all people should be able to say, we fear no one but God. We fear no one but God. And again, I don't mean that that courage, and that's what this is, it's encouraging. Can you feel it? And I read that passage and I like, what's hidden in that passage, and I'm like, oh, yes. You want to scream almost. You're like, yes, it's true. <laughs> it encourages us. We of all people should be able to say, we fear no one but God. What can man do to us? Nothing. Nothing. And so we can dedicate our lives to worshiping God and serving and loving the people that God has put us in front of, like Daniel did. If God wants, listen, God's going to do what he's going to do, right? If God wants to display his power to the world by creating a huge revival in the West, praise his holy name. If God wants to display his goodness and love and forbearance and patience to the world uh, by leaving us and allowing the long defeat to continue as we act in kindness and mercy to our enemies, then praise his holy name. If God wants to end our exile and bring us home into glory, then praise his holy name. We can stop wasting time looking at the lions and instead spend our time looking at God and seeing what he's going to do, which makes things real simple for us. And I like simple. It means that we, all we have to do is worship God be faithful to God, love and serve the people he's placed before us, we can continue to practice a love unrestrained by worldly success or ambition, and we can trust God to do the rest. Because we know, why? Because we know on this side of the cross, we know that that promise was fulfilled. We know that that promise right here, made tens of thousands of years ago, came true. The blessed God did come down, teaching by his death that we who have been laid low by sin have found eternal Sabbath rest. And if the first promise proved to be true, we can know that the promise of his return and our resurrection and our glory is every bit as true. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the beauty of it, the depth of it, the, uns, ins, the indestructible nature of it. 
And Jesus said, the word cannot be broken. I don't think we even know what that means. But it certainly means that it, it proves itself to be true. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to take courage in that, knowing that we have been saved, we are covered by the atoning blood of Christ, that we are part of your family, that that will never change, and that our future is more glorious and more hopeful and more joyous than we can even imagine. And we pray that you would help us uh, to live courageously in this world, Lord, not courageously by trying to fight and attack our enemies, but courageously by continuing to publicly hold to what is good, true, and beautiful, even if it means worldly disaster and an act of self-sacrificial love and a witness of your goodness and beauty and truth to the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing praises to God as we meditate upon that and as we approach his table. Thank you.